Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. This Mother's Day, celebrate the extraordinary women in your life with a heartfelt gift from Blue Nile. Whether it's for your mom, a mother figure, or yourself as a mom, find that perfect piece to express your love and appreciation. Explore Blue Nile's exquisite pearls and mesmerizing gemstones that she's sure to love. Enjoy fast shipping options like guaranteed free shipping and returns. Make this Mother's Day unforgettable with a piece from Blue Nile. Right now, get up to 50% off at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Hello, welcome to the History Hit World Wars podcast, a podcast dedicated to that turbulent period in history between 1914 and 1945. I'm James Rogers, and in this episode, we look at the Somme, the biggest and bloodiest battle in the history of the British Army. In fact, one of the bloodiest battles to ever take place on Earth. It was preceded by a week of ferocious, relentless artillery barrage in which 1.5 million shells were fired. And then, on that fateful morning, July 1st, 1916, the infantry attacked. The whistles were blown, and this rumbled on until November 1916. In this episode of the History Hit World Wars podcast, first recorded for Dan Snow's History Hit, Dan talks with Professor Peter Doyle, co-author of Kitchener's Mob, The New Army to the Somme. Peter tells us about the makeup of the British Army, the people who fought in it, how they were conscripted, how they were trained, and ultimately how they fought against a well-prepared and formidable German foe. Peter, as always, thanks for coming on History Hit. You have just published a magnificent new book. It is called Kitchener's Mob, together with Chris Foster, and it's the new army to the Somme. I really want to talk to you in this week of all weeks, because, of course, it's the, we're building up for the uh, centenary of the Somme. We're going to have a lot of talk about the casualties, the, the battlefield action, the tactics of that day. I want to talk to you about the build-up, the training. Who were these men? How were they recruited? What was the army that marched to the Somme like? And the person to talk to is clearly you. So start, if you will, by reminding us all, Britain didn't have a mass, even despite being this massive imperial superpower in, in 1914, didn't have what, a, a big mass army, did it? No, that's right. Britain really relied upon its navy. The navy was the strength of the nation. The nation knew that you know, it couldn't in any way be invaded because the navy was there and ready to do battle. The army, well, the army was incredibly professional, and we'd seen that already. 1914, of course, uh, that army went into action and was reputedly an army that could fire its weapons like no other. So, really, the British army was there to be deployed on the continent of Europe if needed, but also to go out and police the outposts of empire. So, when the Britain declared war, when the war came to pass, really, what was what was going to happen was that we needed Britain needed a new army, an army that was going to take on the might of the German army. The Germans, well, they had a machine. 
Their army was designed to win. It had been like that since the late 19th century. And of course, the Germans were, in effect, the best army in the world. They had the best army in the world. They knew that they could uh, muster huge amounts of men. And it was Lord Kitchener who was brought in as Secretary of State for war in the early days of the war, who realised, as a professional soldier, that Britain's volunteer army, this tiny little army, was not going to cut it in terms of numbers of men when there were going to be a long, long slog. It was going to be a long, long slog and there were going to be large numbers of casualties. So when Kitchener came in, one of the first things he did was to say, Rook, we need to have a mass army, a mass volunteer army, and we need to go directly to the citizens of, of Britain and to get them to join it. And what's remarkable, just reading your book here, by the end of the war, five Nearly five million men had joined the army. Now, not all volunteers, because obviously conscription comes in halfway through, but five million men had joined the British army by the end of the war. That represents just under a quarter of the entire male population of the UK. Yeah, I mean, the British army, of course, started from its small number of some thousands, hundreds of thousands, and we build up to five million. Of course, that includes quite a number of other nations and uh, in terms of the British Commonwealth or British Empire. But really, we're looking at a large number of men who were fielded. And as you've said, that would include not only the regular army soldiers who were recruiting right the way through the war, the territorial soldiers, which were known as the Saturday night soldiers. These were guys who trained on a Saturday, who went also out on uh, summer camps and were, in effect, designed to be home defence. But of course, like our territorial soldiers, today also would see service overseas. There would be these volunteers who would come in and uh, would fight on the sum amongst their com- comrades and then the, the war at the end would be fought and, and won, to be honest, by the conscript soldiers, many of whom were young. So it was a huge uh, engagement and it all started really from this view that to get and to beat that German machine you needed a mass army, a mass army based upon volunteers. And this is the incredible thing, you know, that the idea of mass volunteering is something that many people today find very challenging. So give me a sense. We, we all think there's so many myths around the outbreak of war. Were people happy? Were people sad? Did people volunteer? Was there a bit of shirking? How many people volunteered from the outbreak of war in 1914 to, say, the end of 1915-ish? Well, there are a lot of um, there are a lot of concepts there which um, people tend to put their twenty first century views on it, and I would say those categories of men, well, they all existed. There were shirkers, there were people who were worried, there were people who who were conscientiously would object to war, there were men who wanted adventure, there were men who were trying to escape. So there were a large number of men who were wondering exactly what they're going to do. Now, one of the research things that I've done for this book is to take the statistics of the recruitment and to examine the pattern of those uh, statistics to see whether there's any uh, particular days when men joined to see when you know there's any particular periods when they joined one of the myths of the the great war is that uh, as soon as war was declared there were huge lines of men who were outside the recruitment offices banging on the doors in effect saying let me join that just wasn't the case. There were, of course, patriotic men and men who wanted adventure who were going and banging on the doors in effect. But it wasn't until the British army was in difficulties at Mons in mid to late, I'm getting towards late August, that the British suddenly realised, hold on a minute, 
This can't be happening. Our army is in retreat. Suddenly, the thing got personal. And that's when we see a huge recruiting spike. Massive. And that's when we see the long, snaking lines of men who are waiting to, to join. Now, one of the things that has been in, interesting in, in doing a graphical representation of this, so I did a graph in this book, it showed an incredible recruiting trend, which was that on a Sunday, recruitment fell away to almost nothing. And on Monday, recruitment came in very strongly and then fell away gradually towards the end of the week. Now, what this shows is difficult, perhaps, for us to interpret. But I would say that it, it demonstrates uh, a range of factors, maybe the, the back to work Monday feeling, I don't want to do this job, I want to go and join up. It might be the the crowded nature of the average person's home, with lots of children, small rooms, small houses, you know, I can't stand this anymore, I'm going to join up. Or it could just be the sense of the uh, the patriotic duty welling up inside you as you're in church or walking the streets or going out on a promenade uh, and that's what again you would join on Monday and so this pattern continues right the way through the voluntary approach but the the largest number of men joined after the battle of the Mon, battle of Mons and the battle of the Marne and that's when men started to think right this is where we've got to join and this is when those posters your country needs you were really having their biggest impact suddenly it wasn't anybody else it was me as I looked at the poster I must join and that I think is something again that people have difficulties understanding today. Peter we should probably mention here that the infamous uh, PALS battalions because people could join regular army units they could join territorial uh, army units that were raising sort of second third battalions couldn't weren't they and what, so what, what, would the, what was the definition of what, what's a PALS battalion apart from all these other things? Well, what we should uh, examine is exactly what Kitchener was about. Kitchener was, as his stare indicates, a man of little patience. He was a man who wanted to get things done. He wanted action. And so he knew that the war was going to go on for three years. At least he knew that there would need to be millions of men that were fielded. And so he didn't want to go through the nicely constructed system, the territorial system, was uh, based upon these things called territorial associations. Men would join. Through them, uh, they, it would be efficient. It would deliver these territorial battalions of men who served, uh, as I say, on a Saturday or you know in the summer. But Kitchener knew that it would take an immense amount of time to go through those, and also the control would be vested in these county areas. So he, um, he didn't disrespect the territories anyway, but he knew that he wanted to get the job done. So he went directly directly to the public. He made a, an appeal in the newspapers on the 8th of uh, August. And, and from that point on, he was starting to get men who would come forward to join. Now, his view was that those men would join battalions. That means a thousand men, in effect, uh, that would be added on to every one of Britain's famous county regiments. So every time there's a thousand men, they would be distributed around the country and they'd be added on to the regiment, the Middlesex Regiment, for example, the King's Liverpool Regiment, the uh, Northumberland Fusiers, that kind of thing. And so these, these thousands would be added and they, the, uh, they would create these new battalions of men and therefore they became known as the K1, K2, K3, meaning Kitchener, but also meaning the first 100,000. So there was 100,000 K1, there's another 100,000 K2 and so on. 
Now, these men, as they joined, they were from, what's interesting in a demographic, they were from all walks of life. They would be everybody from middle-class individuals who felt the duty. They would also be men who would be, uh, again, from working trades, who, again, felt the the call of their duty. But there may also be men who were down and out, men who uh, had nowhere to go. Uh, A wider range of, of men from across Britain's sort of demographic profile. What happened was that uh, individuals started to think that senior individuals, individuals in power, started to think, hold on a minute, uh, we can do something here. I'm uh, old, I can't join, and it doesn't matter how many times I give a speech, I'm not sure that I can get more men to join. But if I can come up with something which will get mass participation then that would be a valuable thing now one of the one of the aspects of mass participation was that the british army in the 19th century was viewed as a set of ragabonds you know they would be men who were hard drinking they would be men who would be likely to get into fights they would be men who were serving in the empire and it's a very famous poem by kipling relating to that saying you know when tommy is required he's a hero but when he's not required he's a drunkard Now, that's the way in which the British soldier was uh, portrayed in the 19th century. So although some men from rough, tough working class backgrounds might be happy to join and say, well, we'll take our chances. Some other men, you know, men who are not accustomed to doing physical labor may feel that they aren't able to join, that maybe they'd feel out of place. So first and foremost, we get the development of the idea. Why don't we, uh, us senior individuals, appeal to uh, groups of men who would be less likely to join if we can give them the guarantee that they would join together and serve together. So originally there was the stockbrokers. Uh, these are in London. This was uh, relatively early on in August and the idea was mooted. And yeah, sure enough, many men from banking backgrounds joined together to serve together. But the real idea uh, developed and came about in later August when Lord Derby, who was an influential figure in Liverpool and Manchester, uh, announced in the Liverpool press that he thought he could make a direct appeal to the commercial classes, as he called it, commercial classes which would bring in men from the counting houses, uh, maritime offices, and so on and so forth, and that those men would not have to serve with men that they were fearful of or that they didn't understand, but they would serve together as a group of pals. Now, when Lord Derby, who was very influential, came uh, came up with this concept, he was mobbed. You know, there were, I guess there was a feeling of relief. And it was, to be honest, based upon snobbery, um, understandable perhaps, but snobbery nonetheless. And as an absolutely outstanding uh, headline that, that Chris and I talk about in our book, which says... You know, um, recruiting has gone well, um, fantastic number of men, no undesirables. That's in the headline of one of the Liverpool press, indicating that they were only out to get men who were middle class. And this idea spread like wildfire. It spread to all of the major uh, cities in the northwest and the north, uh, up into Tyneside. It spread to other major cities like Bristol. Uh, Of course, London had a major contribution to make in this area too. And we see also many of the the major Scottish cities uh, who had lots of men who, again, would be serving together. And so we get the concept of the Pals coming about by... Uh, these men who were going to be joining together to serve together. Now, that 
that pattern doesn't always work. So the Accrington Pals, of course, one of the uh, most famous and ill-fated on the Somme, uh, were from a small town who were in competition with their larger neighbours, like Manchester and so on. And those men uh, came from a variety of backgrounds. It was a fairly depressed town in, in some ways. So you can't absolutely say that this applied to everyone, but certainly the Pals, as a concept, applied to these... Um, commercial classes, as they were called at the time, and getting men from middle-class backgrounds to join. So you have the first men, Kitchener's men, K1, K2, who were a diverse background. They get forgotten, and then you get everybody now thinks only as Kitchener's men as pals, these people uh, who were joining at the influence of a a number of major uh, citizens. How that is, Peter, that is totally fascinating. I will, uh, I'll never forget that. That's brilliant. So what sort of trade? So they all join up. It's the autumn of 1914. Is Britain able to provide them with rifles and uniforms? And how does their equipping and training go? When do they start to deploy to France? It's an incredible thing. You could imagine, can't you, that, that uh, Kitchen is saying, we won't worry about that. Let's get the men. And that's really what he was saying. You know, we need more men. I don't care what we're going to do. We'll find a way somehow. So he really was an action man. There's no doubt about that. So you can think that the British army, you'd imagine, can't you, the Mandarins in the war office were saying, yes, we need the men. But how the hell are we going to equip these fellows? Uh, so straight away, the, uh, the British did what the British do, which is to have their civil servants starting to think about, OK, what else can we do? How can we how can we deal with this? So if you're getting thousands of men joining, you've not only got problems about where you're going to accommodate those guys. You also got ideas of, of what the hell are we going to do to to clothe them? And then not only that, how are we going to equip them? So the, the accommodation, met, well, that was met by a range of different things. Some men lived at home until things uh, got better. Others, there were tented camps all over the United Kingdom so that you know they could bring men out into bell tents and start to drill them and so on from that point. Uh, the clothing side of things was very, very difficult for, because the vast majority of men who were joining wanted to be in khaki. If there was one thing that the British viewed their army as, and they'd, they'd learnt this lesson through the late 19th century wars, is that khaki personified the soldier. And so the very fact that khaki had run out, Britain, of course, very famous for its clothing and textile industry, but the clothing was really running out. One of the interesting things about the pals and stuff is these are uh, organisations with very powerful individuals who can cut corners, could cut red tape and could get straight to the suppliers if they wanted. And relatively few of them did that. It's interesting. You know, they could have said, right, OK, we're going to circumvent this and get the car key. So generally speaking, what we see is the first men, the Kitchener's army men, those first men who joined from a variety of backgrounds, were given a suit of clothes that was pretty much the worst thing you could ever wear. It was baggy. It was uh, fairly shapeless. It was ill-suited for combat, but at least it made the men look uniform. And that's the idea of, of uniforms. But for the pals, well, that wasn't good enough. They could These uniforms were in, in blue, in a kind of dark blue, uh, because that was blue surge was available. But the men and women who raised the pals, because there were women who, uh, very influential women who raised pals battalions also, these people were saying, right, we, we have to go with the blue, but we're going to make sure we've got a uniform that matches the uniform of khaki. And so, again, you see this pecking order 
of the Ordinary Kitchen Man and the Pals Man. No, we're going to look the best. So men from Bradford, from Birmingham, from Manchester, they had the best uniforms because they come from the places with not only the uh, the best cloth, but also the best badges, you know, every aspect of the heraldry. So, okay, you've got them, you've got them housed, you've got them clothed. What about the equipment? Well, again, equipment was really quite challenging because the thing that all soldiers are used to wearing, the so-called webbing, it's a kind of, certainly then, it was a very closely woven cloth, uh, closely woven cotton, which is very strong, capable of uh, carrying lots of bullets and, and other bits of equipment. But there were only two factories that could produce this thing in the United Kingdom. So what you have is a mishmash of whatever was left in the stores you know whatever could be found so there'd be bits and pieces of leather equipment left over from the britain's imperial wars and men would have done these proudly to think look i'm still i still look like a soldier the rifles well rifles again the short magazine lee enfield the best uh, infantry weapon i think uh, of the war well that again was in short supply and to have one of those was you know really something that would be uh, seen as a badge of honor so a lot of men had to have uh, their weapons uh, that were you know things that that were left behind uh, from the latter part of the 19th century they would have imports from america and japan there would be all manner of uh, manufacturing ruses to try and get more weapons and so a lot of men did train with uh, wooden rifles with things that were not capable of actually firing, but at least they could march up and down with. In terms of the training, the last thing, uh, the first thing you asked, the last thing to talk about, is that the training was based on the British Army's manuals. The British Army had completely overhauled its training in the aftermath of the Boer War. You can imagine, can't you, in the Boer War, the British Army were facing the Boers themselves. They thought, right, okay, we are the best, you know, we are we are the imperial force, and they were given a bloody nose. So in the aftermath of the Boer War, they were really reorganised. They gave, were given a full diet of, of training, a six-month training uh, syllabus, which dealt with everything from physical strength through to the means of using the bayonet and the rifle. And all of the men of the 1st Kitchener's battalions would receive this. It's just as things started to get more uh, compressed, as you start to get more and more men needed, so that number of months is starting to be compressed. So the final thing, when did they first deploy? Well, Again, we, we tend to think of, and there's, there's a mythology of the Kitchener's battalions being thrown into the front line and you know, with, with very little training. Now, in certain circumstances, that is true. But for the most part, the men who arrived in France, and that would be in May 1915, that is the first time that they're arriving in France, they were men who were trained. It's just that they had not seen combat and they had not engaged in trench warfare so really uh, a lot of these men as they're arriving uh, have to go into areas like the Ypres salient uh, or before they move down into the Somme to get some custom customizing to what trench warfare is about and there were other men of course uh, who went elsewhere there would be the battle of Luss, which uh, was a massive uh, deployment of men from the Scottish uh, 9th and 15th Divisions, both of them Kitchener's men, and they would fight at Luss. Uh, there would also be Gallipoli, and at Gallipoli, again, there were a large number, quite a large number of men who would be taken there from the Kitchener battalions to fight. 
And so, you know, we, we've got a whole range of these things which are turning up in France and other places. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. And what did the old sweats, the professional soldiers, make of all these new guys turning up through 1915? You can imagine, can't you? You can imagine what the old sweats think and what the old sweats actually think now. Uh, these are the new guys. They are the men who are arriving, some of them youthful, some of them uh, probably a little bit naive. And one of the things about trench warfare is that it's not necessarily the massive set-piece battles which are causing the, the overall casualties, but a lot of the time these are men who are coming in unwary, they're excited, you know, the first time they've gone in, up the line. You know, the men are talking about this as going up the line to the front, you know, back in Blighty, they adopt the language of the soldiers, uh, and as they arrive at the front, you can imagine them kind of moving up there at night, you can imagine also the battalions who are coming out of the line, who had spent their tour of duty in the front there, a week, two weeks in the front line. And they would be, as they were passing, you can imagine, what's it like, Jim? What's it like at the front? Some of whom would be kindly, well, you know, keep your head down, son, that kind of thing. Other of whom would say, well, you're not going to last. You know, you need to be be careful what you're doing. So I would imagine that a lot of the old sweats who'd seen a lot uh, had seen by this time an awful lot of re- reinforcements coming through, but they would be looking at the Kitchener's men as something different, you know, something that they'd heard about, but probably have some doubts about because, of course, they had not yet uh, served their time in the front and had not yet proven themselves in action. So as we get to early summer of 1916, we talk about the Somme, we talk about Kitchener's army, is there a sense, uh, have you got the figures for the proportion of soldiers who go into action on the Somme, uh, say in the first day or the first week, that were old professionals or, or new army? Was this, was this deliberately designed to be a new army affair? We have to examine what, what was happening here. Uh, one of the things when Lord French, who was the previous commander of the, of the British Expeditionary Force, who lost his uh, job after the Battle of Lewis in September 1915, 
One of the things that, that both French and his successor Haig knew was that in order to take on the German army in a field and to take, on, take him on in an offensive capacity, you would need a large number of men. I mean, the, the attack to defence ratio two to one is generally what is, what is held. So you would need to have a sufficient men to be able to go over the top. The British army had been depleted, so the regular army had been depleted and getting into the territorial force um, being depleted in 1914-1915. So you're seeing a, a great loss of what would be the experienced soldiers. Not necessarily all of them killed, of course. You're going to get wounded ones. You're going to get men who are redeployed back, uh, illness and so on. But you, you start to see a loss of the numbers of these men. So both French and later Haig knew that in order for them to go onto offensive action, and the French, I think the French nation were pushing the British to do something. You know, they had this ally, an ally that had to get its armies together, but an ally who, you know, was waiting on its new army being trained and ready to deploy into the field. So when that army was finally kind of ready, and that would be in again um, towards um, the end of at uh, the end of 1915. Beg your pardon, and we're getting then into uh, being deployed, ready for the action in the Somme. You could see that the that Haig is now taking on a view. Well, we have got new divisions ready. Each time you get these thousands and thousands of men joining, they, they are put together to create divisions of men, and those divisions, the new army divisions, were ones that would be deployed. Now again, in, in planning for a major offensive like the Somme, which was uh, planned for, considered, and thought of as a joint French-British uh, deployment, and that's why it was chosen to be at the Somme, the junction of the, of the French and the British armies, rather than in Flanders where Hay wanted it. The idea was, well, you would deploy your divisions of new army, as it was called, the Kitchener's Army men, between divisions of men who were made up out of the, uh, the regular troops and also the territorials, men who'd already seen action. So what you're doing is you're, you're having, yes, your new army soldiers uh, in divisions, and then between them you have uh, regular men and territorials. Now, obviously, you've got more... Kitchener's army men to deploy and therefore you've got more Kitchener's army divisions on the Somme than you do the others but those are there to provide the strength the anchor uh, in between those Kitchener's army men. Now when it comes to the day itself we hear a lot about uh, the men being forced to stand in straight lines march neatly towards the enemies of the parade ground. A is that true and B is that because they hadn't had much experience. You couldn't just expect them all to attack forward like stormtroopers and, and suppress machine gun posts all by themselves. Is the way in which the British Army attacked on, on the 1st of July a product of its relative inexperience? We have to think about... One of the things about the Somme, and this is why it's so actively discussed, is that uh, we can look back on it with twenty twenty hindsight. We can go, great, OK, um, that was a terrible, terrible situation, a situation which caused real problems, um, and one which saw this uh, fairly, you know, terrible, well, not fairly, terrible destruction of this, of this number of men. But that's easy for us to say. Think about what's happening here. For once, the British Army is in a position to bombard 
its enemy into oblivion, it felt. It had enough guns, it had a lot more shells than it had had in 1915. It had known, it knew from 1915 that if you deploy sufficient artillery, you can destroy your enemy and then send the men over the top. Now, one of the things, of course, you have to remember is that the Germans were in a position to have the strongest possible defensive positions. They were there to stop such a thing happening and their defensive positions were the best you know that's what you're doing you're sending your infantry across to face this so the in many ways you can look at the first world war and the war in the trenches as a war between the artillerymen and the engineers and in between stuck in the middle you have the infantry the engineers build the defenses the artillery destroy the defenses and during that kind of battle somewhere the infantry the boots on the ground have to go over the top in order to take the trenches now the british fought on a, a quite a long quite a long front you know that's the whole idea so you've got a large number of guns firing on this quite long front from goncourt which was a uh, a feint in the north down to the Somme itself so you can see as these men would be coming out of the the front they would be advancing uh, whilst the artillery were doing what's known as lifting so as the artillery is firing onto the German frontline trenches the it would they would then lift the guns so they would stop the bombardment the infantry would advance they would then bombard the next line and that was the idea so in order to do that you had to make sure that your infantry advanced at a set rate on a war on a broad front so it's not so, it's not as it might be portrayed in the mythology which is that these poor chaps got out of their trenches they were completely overladen with 66 pounds all of this other stuff that people are now it is completely embedded in their view and that they walk slowly towards their front. It's not in any way like that. What required, what, what was required was an understanding of the width of the ground over which they're to fight, uh, an understanding of how you would be best to, to move without losing contact with the men on either side. So to the north of the road between Bapome and uh, Albert, that's where the front line was pretty uh, widely spaced between the front lines. It also where uh, the, Brit the British uh, Pals battalions and others were facing really strong positions. To the south of that road, you had far-sighted generals who were saying, we need to win the race to the parapet. This is what they were thinking. They, it's not just about walking slowly, but it's about ensuring that whilst that artillery is bombarding, and keeping the German heads down, that they've got a head start to get to the parapet to do what the infantry do, which is to take on man for man. So it's not a straightforward to simply say, yeah, the men got out, they were, they were weighed down by their equipment, and they, were, they had to walk slowly because that's all they could do, and then they would get to the German lines. For a start, the, the mythology of the equipment is incorrect. That 66 pounds includes their clothing, uh, the biscuits that they carried in their pockets, and their rifle, and it's not quite as simple as a pack on your back. So there's a lot of mythology. So I would say, you know, yes, the generals learned from this. That's the important thing. They, they, they didn't know they were going to learn, but for sure they learned from this. And then the next battles that are coming, they are already trying to reapply and redeploy. And the Battle of the Somme is not one day. It is 141 days. And that first day taught Hague and his generals that, that that long front was not a good idea. And they broke it down into small individual components to do exactly what they were hoping to do, to destroy the German defences. And they managed to do that 
piecemeal, bit by bit, till they achieved uh, at least the main ridge of the Somme. What's interesting, of course, is you're saying it's it's not just the, the men of Kitchener's armies that were on a steep learning curve, it was also the generals themselves. And that is probably the subject of another podcast, which we must do at some stage. Peter, just to, to, to tell the audience, uh, this week I'm putting out a whole series of podcasts on the Battle of the Somme. If you want more about, well, we've, we've got different aspects of the Somme, the tactical battle, the losses of the first day, all sorts of things. Peter, I just want to ask you one last question really now, which is, we know 60,000 men killed or wounded on the first day of the Somme. It's been seen as the great bloodlet. Although Kitchener's army had been into battle before, this is seen as the absolutely sort of crucial day, the climax of all those years of training and preparation. What was the impact on the Kitchener's army, on its morale, on its organisation, of the losses it suffered on that first day? And of course, a little bit about what was the impact at home as well. Well, I think uh, this, again, we, we can't underestimate the impact of the, the losses on the Somme. I mean, there's a tendency today to try and put this into a context of, well, let's think about it in the context of the whole of the war. And the, the idea of the losses still resonates with us today. And I think we cannot underestimate the significance of this. What I would say is that in the research that I've done and the work that I've done, I don't see any impact or, you know, huge impact on the individual soldiers in terms of sapping their will to carry on. Soldiers generally fight for their mates. They fight alongside them. They fight as a unit. They fight to uh, to preserve that unit integrity. And they also fight for what is right. We remember, we must remember that these men who joined joined to fight for the honour of their of their country. And these might seem old-fashioned values, but that's how they felt at a time. And we can't put our 21st century values on it. We have to think of it for them. So I don't see that it sapped their morale. In many ways, I see it the reverse, that these men knew that or felt that they were there to do the right thing and that they would carry on. And those losses were staggering. Now, in terms of the, in terms of the PALS battalions, one of the things that fascinates me is that the, if you think about the ordinary Kitchener men, those are men who are sort of in the shadow of the, of the Pals Battalions. They, their units are men, are men from different demographics. But the Pals Battalions, well, those are men who certainly came from the same background, the same kind of officers or the same uh, you know, mill workings or wherever they came from. The reality of this is the impact on individual regions was, in, was huge. And we tend to think of it as the whole nation. But I think if you think about, for example, on Tyneside, uh, the, the losses there were intense as the men went over at La Boisselle and terrible losses that they suffered there. So it would be incredibly intense on those men. It would be reported in the news. There would be face after face after face appearing in those newspapers and the impact on those people would be immense. But I don't think at any point, certainly not in 1916, was that sapping the British will to carry on. I think actually on the contrary, it drove them on to, to try and win this battle to take the fight to the Germans. And uh, the forgotten story of the First World War, certainly in Britain, which is weird because it's a, it's, a, it's a great British story. It was the men and, and the, the officers who suffered so badly on the Somme who went on to win some of the greatest victories in the whole of military history in 1918 against the German Field Army in late 1918. So Kitchener's plan sort of worked, basically, in, over the very long term. Oh, absolutely. I can't see that Kitchener had any other choice 
I mean, you know, history can judge Kitchener any way it wishes, but I, I would say that his crowning achievement was the was the realisation that he needed to raise an army that would be able to face and take on the German field army, as you've said, and in 1918, that is what's happened. The men who had learnt, the men who had fought, the men who had led, they took that fight to the Germans, and in 1918, that, that fight was done. Well, Peter, as always, it's great having you on uh, on the podcast. There'll be many other outings, I hope. Peter Dole and Chris Foster's Kitchener's Mob is, is around now, The New Army to the Somme. Go and buy it. It's a fantastic, it's a beautiful book as well as a very scholarly one. And Peter, let's let's stay in touch and perhaps if some exciting stuff happens around the, the centenary, we'll, we'll get in touch and uh, give you a shout and ask for some explanations. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So, for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at uh1.com. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code PROGRAM. And before you go, remember, as a Warfare listener, you get a special discount at History Hip. Subscribers get access to blissfully, uninterrupted, ad-free podcasts and thousands of hours of history documentaries. You've got everything from the American Revolution to my own documentaries like Traces of War, Weapons of War and 24 Hours in Normandy, where I follow in the footsteps of the Green Howards on D-Day from their beach landings to being awarded the Victoria Cross and all the way through their first day where they made it seven miles inland further than any other British or American unit. So head over to historyhit.com forward slash subscribe or follow the link in the show notes and use the code WARFARE to get 50% off your next three months. That's the code WARFARE to get 50% off. And if you're an Apple listener, you can subscribe for new ad-free episodes within the app. So give it a go. I know you're gonna love it.